Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriweta podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes, which can be found on this podcast platform, and tell your friends and family. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We are headed to the west of our continent for part one of the truly magnificent Songhai Empire, one of the largest empires in the world. A shout out to my West Africans out there. Afriwetu has once again landed on your shores. Before we begin, a very quick note. Please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all the platforms. And here we shall post interesting facts, stories, updates, and links for further study for all you lovely people. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. So, as usual, let us start by getting our bearings right. So please, all of you regular listeners, I hope you have your maps out. For all the newbies, I always encourage you to get a map out because it helps you to visualize the region that we're in. So go on. I'll wait. So in terms of the modern location, this empire by covering a huge chunk of West Africa, was one of the largest in pre-colonial African history. And to understand the size, just get this. It encompassed eight present-day West African countries, namely Mali, Chad, Niger, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Nigeria, Senegal, and the Gambia. Its most notable natural landmark was the river Niger, which is also known as Isaber. So if you follow the river, you have an idea of its reach. And then as we go on, you'll also understand why it is important in terms of trade in the Trans-Saharan area. When it comes to the origin story, The makings of this empire can be traced back to at least the 9th century from the region of Dendi and then later the kingdom of Songhai. Initially, the area was under the Mali Empire auspices, but it was never an easy ride for them, as the Songhai were just not easy to keep under control, causing all manner of problems with their kings raiding and fighting Malian forces. And in time, they were actually able to free themselves. So, you know, persistence is, is, is necessary. Then, as we move further down in time, we see the Songhai gaining chunks of territory, being led by the warrior leader, Soni Ali. A large portion of this was from the declining Mali Empire, which in itself was facing serious internal succession politics. And in fact, by Mansa Suleiman's death in AD 1360, it was quite dire as the Malians had lost territory everywhere, not just to the Songhai. Now, one of the cooler aspects of pre-colonial African history study is that we can 
Take a peek to imagine how our ancestors lived and transport ourselves to some of the great cities of their day. So this next session is just about the three famous cities. So we find ourselves smack bang, looking up at this huge mud building, surrounded by the sounds and smells of a thriving city that is buzzing. Our guide leads us closer to check out the main attraction, which is what caught our eye. In front of us, we see what is a truly magnificent sight, up on a high platform with the most creative wall decor, their palm wood spikes sticking out in a geometric pattern, spaced with precision. Taken with the massive wall, the sight is quite something. We walk in through these huge red doors, with what looks like silver orbs as decor. And as we walk through, we look up at the high ceiling dome-shaped corridors. Our guide tells us that within this mosque, there are separate prayer halls, courtyards, offices, and other spaces for use by everybody in the community. As we go through, we look up and we see three towers, each of them shaped like what I would best say is an upside down cone. And on top of these upside-down cones is what looks like ostrich eggs, I kid you not. And against the backdrop of the sun and the clear blue sky, it is truly quite a wonderful view. We're led out of the mosque, which I'm sure by now you know can only be the Great Mosque of Genet, one of the most famous World Heritage Sites in our time. It is thought to be the largest mud building of its kind in the world. As we're walking around, it is actually surrounded by a very bustling city called, you guessed it, Jeannet. We look around and we take in the sights and sounds. We get to the edge of the city and as we look across, our guide points out the River Isaber, which is basically the River Niger in Songhai, meaning big river. It is, after all, the third longest in Africa after the Nile and the Congo, because I just like to throw out random information for our listeners. And then he also shows us the River Bani. As we look down, we realize that we're actually surrounded by water, making this town that we're in its own little island. The two rivers have flooded the plains, and this is apparently a known thing. Anyway, enough of the sights. We have to get back home. So, in a flash... To the present. So now we have seen the Great Mosque. Let's hear a little bit more about its famous city, Genet. So, Genet is one of the oldest cities in sub-Saharan Africa, and although it was more well-known by around AD 850, which is the 9th century, 
The original site, Old Genet, is claimed to have been formed way back in the 3rd century, around AD 250 or so. It was a major hub for trade and commerce, as well as a center for scholarly pursuits and a springboard city for Islam. Now, because here at Afriwetu, we search high and low for cool stories, I found one out about the legend of Koi Konboro, one of this city's kings, and apparently he was like number 26 or something. And I promise this is going to make sense. Komboro's more well-known story is about his conversion to Islam, and of course it has intrigue and all sorts. So, he lived around the 13th century, and the story goes that there was a sage who came into the city, and for some odd reason, Konoboro got very suspicious of him, thinking him a spy. So, like any reasonable person, he decided, I need to kill this guy. But how? Like, I can't just kill a cleric for no reason. So then one of his advisors came up to him with a cunning plan. My king, he said, lend the sage some gold and then later ask for it back. So Konoboro is like, how does that help our lives? My king, then this is what I will do. I will go and steal that gold so that when you ask him for the gold, he will not be able to produce it, which will give you a very good reason to have him executed for theft. Yes? Ah, Konoboro's like, ah, you think very well. Yes, let's do that. So Konoboro went ahead with his plan. The advisor then went to the sage's house, found the gold, and then brought it back to Konoboro, who had it thrown in the Bani River. So all of that have been said. He's like, okay, now. He called the sage. And as planned, asked him, give me back the gold I lent you, knowing it would be impossible. But guess what? The sage had the gold on him. And this impressed Konoboro so much that he became a believer. So how now? What? Where? I can hear you ask. Well, this is the story. It is claimed that a fish had swallowed the box within which the gold was kept, and the sage's wife, having gone to the market, bought the fish, and when she was gutting it, voila, there was the gold. My Jenikes, if you have any other versions of this story, please share them with Afriwetu on our interweb center voice note because we'd love to share this with the rest of the world. So now, the value of Konoboro in this particular story is that it was during his time that the first great mosque was constructed out of his palace. And it was said to be such a magnificent adobe building, the pride of Genet. In fact, there were claims that it was even more magnificent than the Kaaba found in Mecca, which is quite a claim considering the significance of the Kaaba. This first great mosque was replaced in time by Seku Amadou who it is said let it fall to disrepair and then took the chance to build his own mosque, which was designed by Ismail Ature. Today, you can visit Janay and see the great mosque that was built way back when. It is architecturally one of the most famous buildings and is described as a masterpiece. Outside of the Islamic influence in Janay, excavations also point to a very rich African heritage pre-Islam finding the old-style houses made of traditional structures and artifacts that hark back to an industrial age in the city and in the region. 
In AD 1988, UNESCO designated the historic areas of Genet, including the Great Mosque, as World Heritage Sites. Our next city is none other than Timbuktu. By the mid-15th century, it is said to have had a population of around 100,000 people. It was a world-famous trading port and learning center. Everyone knew and still knows about the famed city, with claims that its streets were paved with gold. Mm. So apart from the gold, which wasn't really true at all, everything else that was said about it was. It boasted hundreds of higher learning centers and commerce was booming. When it came to the promulgation of Islam, it was a key city in doing so. It was also a political and military center, playing a big role in the administration of both empires that it was affiliated to at different times, i.e. first the Mali and then our Songhai. It was a self-governing and practically independent city, and based on its size and the dignitaries from both the religious and secular worlds, this is easy to see why. They not only resided there, but they also used it as their base of operations. These people had a lot of influence and basically kind of liked to run things their own way. And again, in all fairness, this city could pull these stunts because even in the decline of both empires, it still thrived. The city itself was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in AD 1988. Our last city on the list is Gao. Now Gao, I promise you Afriwet will have its own episode about it because it was a formidable civilization within its own right. But for now, we shall look at it as part of the Songhai Empire. So, in certain academic circles, it always sounds so clever when people say things like that, and I promise that is exactly the intention here, but hey, in certain academic circles, there is a lot of discussion about the origins and where exactly the first site of Gao was. A quick aside, there are many written records from those who are not the people of Gao, so Afriwet would love to hear from the actual people of the area. I'll be sure to share that with the Afriwatu. Anyway, back to it. What has been proven about Gao is that it was at least occupied from the late African Stone Age, and that in fact when the Sorko, the Songhai folk, landed back in the 7th century to formally kind of establish it, they still would have found inhabitants there. So it's a very, very, very old city. Gao is on this list as it was the identified capital of the Songhai Empire. It was taken over formally by the Songhai in the 11th century, being strategically placed on Isaber. Its location was perfect as a nexus for the trade and commerce in the region when it came to the trans-Saharan and transatlantic trade routes and ports. It was later seized by the Mali Empire in the 13th century, circa AD 1290, and under this rule grew exponentially, becoming a real force in the trade world to contend with, having key trade links as far east as Cairo. You guys need to understand that today it could take about four hours to fly directly to Cairo. And this is, I mean, it's thousands and thousands of kilometers away. And this is the trade that was being done back in the day. 
Gao itself was then retaken by the Songhai in the late 15th century, AD 1495. Its importance to Songhai can be seen in the fact that it holds the famous tomb of Asikia Ture Muhammad, one of the more powerful emperors. And his tomb is actually one of the most important sites in West Africa and was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in AD 2004. <laughs> So these three cities, Jane, Timbuktu, and Gao, were also included in Afriwetu's Mali Empire Civilization podcast, specifically Series 2, Episodes 11 and 12. So please check them out on this podcast platform. So now we come to looking at the society. Now, this was a huge empire. So obviously there was a very diverse group of peoples living under its reign. I mean, it encompassed the whole area stretching over Isaber. And on its banks resided different civilizations like the Mandinka, the Tuareg, the Mosi, the Hausa, just to name a few of the larger groups. And as we said before, the modern nation states it crosses are Benin, Guinea, Mali, Niger, and Nigeria. So, when it comes to the diversity, just a very quick note. The original Songhai people were said to have emerged from two groups. The Gao, who were typically hunters, and the Sorko, who we heard about a bit earlier, who were typically fishermen, so covering both land and water. Anyway, in time, they were joined by other smaller groups, and soon a common culture, identity, and language that we now know as Songhai was born around the 9th century. Fun fact, the language spoken in the empire, Songhai, is actually derived from the Nilo-Saharan language, a lingua franca of the region that is still used today. In their pursuit of greatness, having emerged from under the rule of the Wagadu Empire, as they successfully conquered lands and people within, these Songhai people ended up being a minority within their own empire. Now, in this very huge group of people and this very diverse range of people, I did want to highlight one group who play an important role, not just in the Songhai, but also in the history of pre-colonial West African civilizations. They're called the Wangara, spelled W-A-N-G-A-R. And depending on which civilization you're looking at, the term is used in slightly different ways. So for us today with our Songhai, a common use of the word Wangara is when talking about the gold merchants. In fact, some of the Wangara today can trace their ancestry back to these merchant routes. So they were considered to have had a considerable impact on commerce in the 15th and 16th century, trading in gold as a key commodity. They were astute business people and stimulated the economy in this region, acting as merchants for the Wagadu and Mali empires, for the Borno, for the Bariba, the Hausa, as well as our empire today. They were also linked to production of leather and other materials. They were active in local politics, which stands to reason because you kind of need to be with the policymakers when you're involved in high value trade and commerce. 
In addition, they were also financiers and brokers and made up a part of the wealthy merchant class. I also wanted to mention them here because I think they're a great example of how Africans are not one static idea of ethnicity or tribe and how false the arbitrary boundaries of nation states are today. Because depending on which part of the border you sit, the Wangara can be different ethnic groups. And yet, again, fun fact, in many cases, it is also a word that is synonymous with merchant as opposed to where one's origins are. I like to think of that as a drop knowledge moment. Next, as we think of society, we think of religion and politics. Religion plays a very interesting role in Songhai society. With local traditions, we had them coexisting with Islam. So what it was is that Islam was prevalent in the great cities that we mentioned before, like Jene, Gao, Timbuktu. And with Timbuktu being a real center where you'd find acclaimed scholars and literati from all over the Muslim world, as well as from the secular world. Both the Muslim and non-Muslim leadership had to balance the interests of both the traditional and Islamic leaders because they had to consider the huge influence of the clerics in the larger cities and towns. Whilst at the same time, the influence of the traditional religious leaders outside of these cosmopolitan spaces over the people who had never really converted and kept their local traditions and practices also had to be considered. In fact, the majority of the population had rejected Islam, seeing it as foreign and against their own indigenous religions. Aside of that, the Askias, which means kings, were seen to often give generous gifts that constituted land, livestock, slaves, and tax exemptions to religious leaders. And this is not just out of reverence, but also to get blessings, pardons, and very importantly, to avoid being cursed by them. By the way, this curse thing was a real concern. In fact, Sunni Ali's death is linked to his being cursed. We shall hear a little bit more about him later in the show. So the upshot was that Islam was seen as quite an elite and urban religion and was never really a full-scale state religion. But this does not diminish its impact, but it hopefully gives you a more nuanced view of the empire itself. As with every society, there were different tiers and it worked pretty much like a, a caste system. You had the ruling elite, the courtiers and nobility at the very top. And these were those who had familial ties to the imperial family in one way or another and therefore formed the said social elite. Then you have your governors, ministers and courtiers who were advisors to the throne, including the senior clerics. Next up, you have your wealthy nobles who were not directly linked to the imperial family, but they're those who could have kind of risen up society's ranks. Also up in this high society, you could find the wealthy merchants and industrialists, as well as well-respected military families. Joined by the scholarly types such as the academics, think kind of like professors with tenure, 
And although they had less influence over the government at a higher level, they still did have a form of influence. And below, we have gen pop, or rather, just the general population, including those who lived a mostly agricultural lifestyle in the rural areas, on large-scale plantations, some of which were owned by individuals and some owned by communities. There you could find the peasants and others who would rely on fishing, farming, and breeding animals for meat and leather. And then at the very bottom, you had your slaves and servants. So interestingly, you as a slave or servant could actually better your lot in life and be released from servitude under certain circumstances. In fact, and those who are captured were actually able to gain citizenship. So now we move to the governance of this great empire. We already heard earlier that Gao was the capital of Songhai, and there you'd find the administrative heads. Timbuktu also played a key role in that space, but their contribution was really in terms of its commercial and cultural value. Zhenne's importance was pegged on its contribution to the economy and trade. The empire's size meant that it could only function and be as successful as it was due to a sophisticated system of governance, which included allowing for semi-autonomous rule in some areas. You had the Asikia at the very top. The Asikia title passed from the patrilineal side. He had an advisory council that was made up of imperial family members who held the more important positions in government. Under him, the Askia was also supported in his role by a host of non-family advisors that included senior clerics and military commanders. He was at the head of all key functions, including the military, and he also had the final say on everything, which included waging war, signing treaties, taxation, trade, and so on and so on. On the lower levels in the governance structure, the territories had officials who held posts that would run the administration like a well-oiled machine. The tribute that was paid by these territories would then be used to finance this as well as finance military efforts. When it came to law and order, the empire operated a penal system, which was said to be based on the social status of one. So yep, it was not one rule for all. To enforce this, in the more semi-autonomous tributary states, the Askia would appoint a governor as their representative. Through them, the states were required to pay tribute and taxes and also send soldiers for the war efforts because the military was key to the empire's growth. A very random aside, because I mentioned this earlier about the slaves and servants, it is claimed that sometimes Askias would elevate said slaves and servants to positions as advisors in the belief that they could give honest views as they had no personal links and would not be swayed easily. So now let's go back to the past and visit these royal courts. Our guide is waiting for us, happy to take us around. As we walk into the grounds and are immediately greeted by hundreds of people in the palace grounds. Our guide tells us that today is tribute day for some of the tributary states. So many have come to pay homage and pledge fealty to the throne. 
And in fact, that is our final destination. On our way there, we pass some very important looking nobles. They are judges, he tells us, the Qadi. They adjudicate the laws of the land which were a blend of traditional and Islamic rules satisfying both sides. These guys are in great spirits as they have just been appointed to their roles. As we keep walking, we then see two men who for sure are military guys, for sure. Just the way they walk, talk and are carrying themselves. In fact, they are. It is the head of the army, Balama, and an admiral, Ahikoi. And they are speaking to other senior officials, ministers who are in charge of the treasury, agriculture, and civil service. It looks like they've just come from a high-ranking meeting, so no doubt they'll be reporting their findings to the Askia after the ceremonies. We finally get to the great halls, and the sight is one to behold. We see the Askia seated on a raised platform, surrounded by his servants, hundreds of them. All around, we see the different displays of opulence that have come in the form of gifts from the visiting nobility. From gold to ivory to copper, images and artwork to beautiful materials. And guess what? We hear this is not even the tribute. This is just like the tokens. So you can only imagine how much wealth this Askia has garnered today. And now, good listeners, as we head into the final section in this part of the Songhai Empire, let's take a very brief look at the two more well-known rulers, Soni Ali and Askia Ture Muhammad, and then we shall close out, yeah? So the man who is credited with the start of this empire was none other than Soni Ali. Now, just a heads up, there is an episode for this founder, so here I will just touch on the lighter details and whet your appetite. So Soni Ali Bear, Soni Ali, a.k.a. Soni the Merciless, came from a long line of nobles. And by the time he came to power, the Songhai had been independent of the reigning empire at that point, the Mali Empire, for quite a while. He was a successful military leader from day one. He revolutionized the military, for example, whereas before they would carry out small-scale raids, he changed that to a more organized army raid. In addition, before him, there was no real administrative process, no real professionalism to kind of mobilize large battalions for battle or war. But with him, things did change. And under him, the military grew in size, discipline and effectiveness. Sony Ali brought in administrative structures that helped to form a base for the large expeditions that led to successful conquests across the Sahel. He established himself as truly one of the great warrior kings, and by the time he was done, most of the Sahel was under Songhai control. And please note, this was no small feat, because let's be very clear, people. It's not like people were just sitting around waiting to be conquered. These were formidable civilizations with well-trained militaries themselves. Sunni, from his ascent to power in AD 
1464, using Gawad's base, set out the expansion of territories, making sure to target the trade-rich areas around the Isaber and to get a piece of the gold action. To consolidate this, he then took Timbuktu off the declining Mali Empire, as well as the Tuaregs, and then follows this swiftly by taking Jeanne. And within a few decades, he had subdued his more powerful neighbors. Sony Ali's legend wasn't just about his military prowess, because you know that that would be way too easy. He was also said to be a powerful, get this, sorcerer. And he really played up to this image of him. He was notorious for his cruelty to Muslim believers, which saw an exodus of them out of Timbuktu, because unlike the others, he really did not fear the clerics because he was a powerful sorcerer. That being said, there is a rumor that his ultimate death was as a result of a number of curses that had been heaped against him for being such an infidel, especially when it came to his treatment of Muslim believers. He died in AD 1492 during battle, so a proper true warrior king, leaving his son Sonibaru in charge. This, however, did not last long, and Sonibaru was deposed after a year by our next famous person from the Songhai Empire, Muhammad Ture I. However, Soni Ali's legend will forever be that he was the man who expanded the original kingdom of the Songhai to one of the biggest and mightiest empires in the world. Next, we have Abu Bakr Ture Muhammad I, aka Asikia the Great, who came to the throne in one of the more traditional ways, a good old-fashioned coup. He was a devout Muslim and in his victory declared Sony Ali as an infidel, an unbeliever whose death and the defeat of his own son was as a result of the curses from the clerics. Now, this is important to note because technically he had no hereditary right to the throne. And in fact, he was rumored to even be from a different group of people, the Sonike and not a Songhai. So this claim to the throne was legitimized by his religion instead. This could also explain why he is credited with introducing the idea that one could move up from a lower to a higher social tier or caste. So Asikia Muhammad Ture was the first of his line and with him came the title of Asikia which means usurper, ruler, whatever it is. But basically they used this forevermore in terms of the dynasty of the Songhai. Under him, the role of Islam in the governance, the courts, and society gained a lot more prominence. He, in fact, went on to Hajj and touched the black stone of the Kaaba, which then led to rumors that he was granted magical powers and became himself a sorcerer with the power to curse. In fact, there's a random story I read related to this. So I'm just going to share it. It is said that he cursed his son Musa, telling him that he would find disgrace and his genitals will be exposed to the public for his very adulterous behavior. And apparently, the next day, as Musa was riding on his horse in the town square, he fell off it, his 
robes went up and indeed his genitals were exposed to the public. But outside of all of that, when it comes to Askia Muhammad, he was also a very effective military ruler and under him he continued building and professionalizing the army based on the work that was done by Sony Ali and with it went on to conquer more lands for the empire taking it to its height earning him the rightful respect as the second greatest ruler of the Songhai empire and here we come to a close but before we go a few things first of all teaser coming up in part 2 we shall cover the game of politics the instability that was within the royal household that eventually spilled over into the empire's operations and weakened it from the core we shall also meet the core of the empire's success which is the military and commerce and then of course the ultimate demise so as we bring it home just as a quick reminder Between the 6th and 17th centuries, West Africa housed some of the most impressive empires which were at their peaks, starting with the Wagadu, then its counterpart Mali, and then our own Songhai. These are three of the most quoted empires when it comes to West Africa. And I hope that this Afriwetu version of the Songhai will be one that you come back to again and again and again. And Afriwetu I just need to reiterate something. This empire consisted of eight modern-day African countries, which I promise you are not small. In fact, the average African nation-state is larger and more resource-rich than most nations globally. And also remember, it was in operation and a force to be reckoned with for 300 odd years, holding its own against any other foreign empires globally. So what I do here at Afriwetu is such a joy because I get to research these amazing civilizations but what is even better is that you and other people then discover them and embrace our heritage. I do hope that you enjoyed today's show. Thank you for listening and until next time, mubarikiwe. Thank you.